Well, good morning and welcome to Palm Sunday. This is one of my favorite times of the year, not only because it's Easter time, and that's just a great time to work at a church, uh, but also because the weather's getting warmer, the sun's out longer, the little kids are out in the backyard instead of the living room, which is always great. Uh, but also I love this time of year uh, because it's the season of my birthday. Now, you can ask my wife, I actually am not a person that likes to make a big deal about my birthday, although I just told all of you about it. But what I do like to do around my birthday is to do some reminiscing. I love to think back to my childhood. Now, I know I am biased, uh, but I think I came from a great era to be a kid, the early and mid-90s. This is the era of the Ninja Turtles, uh, the era of the Power Rangers, Tamagotchis, Pogs, N64, Mario Kart. This is my childhood. But not everything about the mid-90s was awesome. One of the things we were stuck with from the past was the good old box TV. Now, I found a picture here of, uh, of one that looks like the one that was in my house. Ours was old even for the 90s when we had it. Uh, we had one of those big dials on the front that only went to channel 12. Um, ours turned on by pulling a knob out like you were choking a tractor. Um, Maybe yours looked something like this, or maybe you had something that looked a little different. I know some of you had those box TVs with the VHS player built in, you know, the peak of technology in 1993. Some of you remember these big box TVs that were like entombed in massive pieces of furniture, right? These things that were never going to move, they came with a house, remember those things? There's all kinds of downsides about this era of TV, the size, the weight, of course, but the biggest downside, in my opinion, was how the picture would so often get distorted. Do you remember looking at your TV and it looked like that? You know, you'd, you'd go to turn on a game and you dial it to the right channel and it's like, oh my goodness, it's not sharp. So what would you do when the picture was distorted? You had a few options. One, you could try to mess with some of those dials on the front of the TV. Now, even as a grown man today, I still don't know what all of those knobs did, but I guess if you moved them in the right sequence and chanted the right say saying of words or something, it would clear up. If that didn't work, you'd go to option B, uh, which was you go to the back of the TV and pull up the antenna. Remember the bunny ears that came out of the back, right? And you'd be pointing those things around like toward Russia to try to get a better signal uh, for your show. But when all else failed, you'd go to the nuclear option. The nuclear option was a precise technique you would use when nothing else was working to get your reception right. Now, teens, I'm going to demonstrate to you something that your parents will remember. Anybody who grew up in the box TV era will remember. We would approach our tube TV. We'd locate the precise point of impact. And then... We'd bang on the TV. We would beat our TVs into submission. That's what we did in the 90s. You know, this is the week of Easter. It's Palm Sunday today. This is a time of year when the whole world is saying the name Jesus. Yet for many people, this is how Jesus appears distorted. Do you know people who have a distorted view of who Jesus is? If you pay attention, 
you'll see it all over the place. Some people have a wound from when they were a kid. Some way that Jesus let them down. Other people have been rejecting Jesus their whole life, and now they find themselves angry at God. They've distanced themselves as much as possible from God's love. They've suppressed his image as deep as they can. Others may be people of faith, but people who are so burdened by life. Have you had moments of discouragement like this before? Now, maybe you were too private to post it, but you know what it's like to have a heavy spirit. See, it's not just people who don't believe in Jesus who can distort his image. You and I can see him like this too. There's people in this room or watching who can think back on seasons of their life where Jesus was distorted. Times of unanswered prayer. Memories you have of people who were supposed to be representing Jesus to you, but represented him very poorly. Some of you have battled thoughts about heaven, hell, death, God. You've had doubts that you've never shared with anybody. Maybe you've even sat in this room before and seen testimonies on our screen of people who are talking about all that Jesus meant to them. They had an extremely difficult circumstance, but Jesus was right there when they needed him. And now they have incredible faith in who he is. And you watch that and you think, man, I would do anything to feel that way about God, but it's not how you feel. Your picture of Jesus is distorted. So how do we sharpen our picture of who Jesus is? Unfortunately, we can't, we can't just bang on Jesus. It doesn't work. But we can go to our source. And for the next two Sundays, we're going to look at two resurrection stories, two of Scripture's most powerful narratives that if we pay attention, will show us who Jesus really is. The first one that we're going to look at today is the story found in John 11. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, today is Palm Sunday, like I said, and as you know, Palm Sunday commemorates when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That started off Holy Week and ended with him dying on the cross and raising from the dead. Now, that happens in John chapter 12, and immediately before that, our story today is found in John chapter 11. Now, John tells this story uh, by dividing the story into four parts. We're going to look at each part of this story, but we're going to pause at the end of each part of the story, and we're going to see how the way John tells this story can sharpen our picture of who Jesus really is. So, our first section, verses 1 through 16, we see this. Jesus shows his love by delaying his help. 
Verse one says this, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus gets this urgent message from the sisters. The guy who you love, our brother Lazarus, is not doing okay. Now I think it's interesting If you or I were to get news that one of our loved ones or a friend maybe had a bad diagnosis, one of our first instincts might be to go to the Lord in prayer. And that's exactly what Jesus' friends did with him when he was living. They reach out to him, our brother's sick, can you help? And Jesus responds this way, verse four, when Jesus heard it, he said, classic Jesus, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if we're going to understand what we're going to read in John chapter 11 today and have a chance to sharpen our image of who Jesus is, this verse is crucial. You see, Jesus gets an urgent message about a sick man, but that is not going to be Jesus' main concern. In fact, this whole story that we're going to look at today points us to a higher purpose. It's going to reveal to us the glory and the wonder and the majesty of who God is. It's going to be a sign that points to the Son of God. And if there's any doubt that Jesus is up to something extraordinary, look at what John says next. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if you're reading scripture carefully, this is one of those places where you read in the Bible and you think, did I get that right? He loved them, so he stayed two days longer. Jesus shows his love by delaying his help. Now, in a few verses, Lazarus is going to die. And given that Jesus at this point is like 100 miles away from where Lazarus is, Jesus is way up in Galilee. Even if Jesus left the moment that he received the news about Lazarus, he would not have made it back before Lazarus is dead. But even if that's true, what a strange way to show your love by delaying your help. And that's exactly what scripture wants us thinking right now. What is Jesus up to? The disciples were wondering the same thing for their own reasons. In verses 7 to 13, uh, they remind Jesus of the danger that's waiting for him down near Bethany in Jerusalem. That's the place where all those people are who want to kill you, Jesus, remember? And Jesus responds with a little parable basically saying, hey, as long as it's my time to work, I'm going to continue to work And then in verse 14, he breaks the news to his disciples of Lazarus' death. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So here goes Jesus on his way to Bethany, despite the danger that's waiting for him down there near Jerusalem. But before we join Jesus there, I want us to pause for a moment and think about what we just read. 
Jesus shows his love by delaying his help. Now, if you were Mary or Martha, let me ask you a question. How do you feel about Jesus showing his love by delaying his help? My guess is that it doesn't feel much like love at all. Yet what do these verses teach us about Jesus? It's not that Jesus didn't love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Text tells us he loved them. It's that his love was actually forcing him to act according to a bigger picture. And that is the first point that John teaches us in this story of how we can sharpen our view of who Jesus is. In this part of the story, John shows us that he is providential. Do you have a good definition of providence? He controls our circumstances for his glory and our eternal good. Now, this is an attribute we normally associate with God the Father, but here we see it on display in the life of Jesus. Providence teaches us that God often shows his love in ways that we don't immediately understand. Growing up in my church, we would bring in basically like summer interns, similar to how we do it around here. When I was like in middle school, uh, we brought in an intern named Clinton Clark. Now, Clinton had moved out from Alberta to the, where I was in my province, and uh, he was going to a local Bible college in the area. Now, Clinton wasn't at our church very long, but he made a big impact on my faith. I still remember his humility. I still remember the way he would preach and teach the word of God. But one uh, week in the summer, Clinton had left. Not, he wasn't coming to our church because he was going to go serve in a Christian camp in Quebec. And I'll never forget my dad calling me and my siblings into the living room and sharing with us the news, the tragic news, that Clinton had been in a drowning accident at that camp. People who were there said that a bunch of the counselors had tried to swim out to some object out in the lake, and uh, Clinton, who wasn't a great swimmer, had gotten overwhelmed in the water and, and drowned. People said who were there that if you climbed up on like a nearby rock that had a little bit of perspective and looked down at the water, you could actually see there was a lot of current in the lake that you couldn't see from eye level. And evidently that's what overwhelmed him and he went under. Now many people would hear a story about that and ask, where was Jesus when Clinton needed him the most? I'm sure that thought crossed his parents' mind when they had to fly his body back to Alberta and bury their 20-year-old son, who moved across the country to serve Jesus. But then they read Clinton's prayer journal. In his journal, not long before he died, Clinton had prayed, God, whatever it takes to save my dad, do it, even if it means taking my life. And at Clinton's funeral, his father accepted Christ. A couple months after the funeral, his dad came and visited our church. I remember throwing a football in the backyard of the church with him, talking a little bit about his son. There's the legacy of one of my mentors, like a 20-year-old kid from my perspective now. 
who had a rock-solid understanding of the providence of God. He controls our circumstances for his glory and our eternal good. Is your Jesus one who has to act exactly how you want according to your timing? Is the Jesus that you see someone who has to do exactly what you want when you want it or he's not real or not trustworthy? Friend, that's not who Jesus really is. That's a distortion. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. He's providential. He's working out circumstances for his glory and our eternal good. So in the first part of our narrative, Jesus reveals God's providential love by actually delaying his help. Our story continues with verses 17 to 27. And in these verses, Jesus comforts grief by pointing to himself. The next part of our story, verses 17 to 27, Jesus comforts grief by pointing to himself. Now, by verse 17, Jesus has actually made his way down to Bethany. But at this point in our story, we get a new twist. Because now it's going to be a private conversation between Jesus and Martha that actually carry our story forward. Verse 17, we read this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning her brother. This is actually a little clue in our text that you're probably talking about a pretty prominent, probably wealthy family, that they would attract some of the people from nearby Jerusalem to grieve alongside them. The text goes on, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And now we get to listen in to a conversation between Jesus and Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. I see in Martha's words a measure of faith. She knows enough about Jesus to know he could leverage his relationship with the Father to do extraordinary things. But Jesus responds to her, your brother will rise again. Now you and I know what Jesus means here. He's gonna raise him up from the dead. But that's not how Martha takes him. Look at what she says in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She misses Jesus' point, and so he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Back in those mid-90s, uh, there was a, a series of commercials on TV in Canada. They depicted this Canadian guy who had gone to work in the U.S., uh, in some American office, and um, all his coworkers were constantly making fun of him for being Canadian. It's like story of my life, okay? Um, but these coworkers were making fun of the way he talked, no doubt about it, eh? Um, making fun of the way he ate donuts, uh, making fun of the, the national animal of Canada, the beaver. Okay, that's fair, I'll give you that one. Um, but at the end of this conversation, this Canadian guy is taking it all he can, 
And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he reaches over this American guy's shoulders, grabs the back of his suit jacket, and pulls it up over his head and starts fighting him. In hockey, that's called jerseying somebody, okay? And then the commercial ends with, I am Canadian. It's supposed to be like a national pride thing, I guess. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying so much more than those are just descriptions of me. What Jesus is saying is that resurrection and life are so bound up in who I am, they cannot be found apart from me. See, when Martha said, I know my brother will rise again, she wasn't wrong theologically. But for Martha, the the resurrection was something abstract, something general, something way out in the future. Jesus wanted her to see the resurrection not as something out there, but as something right in front of her. And then Jesus squares up Martha with as direct of a question as you will read in the Bible. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And why does Jesus ask that question? This woman is grieving the loss of her brother, And Jesus takes the opportunity to turn the attention to himself. Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Her response? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Why does Jesus press her like that? Because he knows the true comfort will only be found in him. See, Martha had her theology correct. She believed in a resurrection, but Jesus wanted to take her from a belief in it to a belief in him. And I think that's the second way that John sharpens our image of who Jesus is in this chapter Not only is he providential, also he's personal. He's personal. He draws us from a general belief to a personal trust. Now, some of you will remember the name Tom Ashby. Uh, The Ashbys came to our church a number of years ago. Tom, his wife, and their three kids. They weren't here very long uh, before Tom got a grim diagnosis. He had cancer. It was going to be terminal and he didn't have long to live. I had known Tom pretty well. Um, He'd taken a lot of our classes here. At the time, I was teaching a lot of those. We would talk after class, and I'll tell you, uh, Tom was a smart cookie. Uh, He knew his theology backwards and forwards. He had multiple years of seminary training, big theological library, gave me a lot of it after he passed away. And uh, Tom just knew theological categories as good as anyone could. I remember going to his home near the end of his life, uh, driving down to his town home in Sellersville, walking upstairs to their bedroom where the hospital bed was set up. When you came in that room, you immediately heard a few noises. There's the sound of the oxygen machine, uh, something then taking some fluids to and from him. But there was another noise in that room. As I got closer, It was the sound of music coming from Tom's phone. He said, 
Today is praise and worship. That's how he greeted us. Tomorrow is hymns. He went on to talk about how the message of those songs, the personal relationship he had with Jesus was what was bringing him comfort in his last days. See, it wasn't cold theological truths that Tom was clinging to. It was a personal trust in Jesus. You know, at Tom's funeral, he, uh, he had me lead the hallelujah chorus right from this spot. That's the hallelujah, hall. He had me do that at his funeral. I always tell people, Tom got the last laugh on me. That's for sure. Uh, and God has richly blessed that family. Now the Johnstone family. But I think a, a question we could ask ourselves this morning in honor of Tom's legacy would be this. Has Jesus just become a truth that you believe in? Or do you have a personal trust? Has Jesus just become a truth that you believe in? Or do you have a personal trust? We're at a church here that has and loves great theology. But in scripture, great theology never comes as a substitute, but goes hand in hand with a personal relationship with Jesus. This story teaches us that Jesus is personal. He draws us from general belief to personal trust. Now, back in John 11, at this point in our story, Jesus has been very tactical carefully timing his journey from, uh, to Bethany, carefully articulating exactly who he was to Martha. But now we're going to see a whole other demeanor of Jesus. In verses 28 to 37, Jesus responds to grief by mourning the loss. Verse 28 says this, when she had said this, that's Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now let me paint a picture that'll help to clarify this a little bit. In our culture, we show honor to those who are grieving by speaking in low tones, hushed voices. We, of course, have a number of funerals here at the church. I always know when it's a funeral because I come in and everybody's talking quietly. I'll make my way inevitably up to the receiving line, greet the family, talk to people in line. It's always, thanks for coming. Maybe we're sharing stories about the person, but it's always whispering. In Jesus' culture, grief was shown a lot differently. And actually, honor to the family was shown by not how quiet you were, but how loud you were. You've heard of like wailing women in the Bible and things like that. That's what we're talking about. That's how it was in Jesus' culture, even in some cultures to this day, other than our own. In fact, Jewish literature teaches us that even the poorest families were required to have two flute players and one professional wailing women at the, min at the minimum. So when you picture this scene, picture it loud. And they see Mary get up and they think, oh, she must be going to the tomb. Let's go do our job. We want to show her honor. But she's not going to the tomb. 
She's going to talk to Jesus. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him the exact same thing that Martha said. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even though those words were exactly the same, Jesus responds totally different. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So you have this scene of Mary and her friends and family and these pro-mourners coming with her. And all the sounds and all the emotions of the moment, Jesus breaks down and begins to weep. And I'm sure Jesus was saddened by the death of his friend Lazarus, but I don't think those tears are just sadness. Remember, he is going to raise Lazarus up in just a few verses. In fact, there's a couple other words that catch my attention in this text. The words, deeply moved. Now, that's actually a pretty soft translation. Literally, these words mean outraged. You can find these words used of, like, horses snorting. Outraged. Where's that emotion coming from? Jesus was outraged. Now, some of that could have been from the lack of faith of those who are around him. I mean, I see a little bit of lack of faith in Mary and Martha. Could be more. He's dealing with all these people who are, are mourning loudly. Jesus might be thinking, don't these people get it? I have power over death. But I think something else could be going on too. You know, as a pastor, any pastor would tell you we receive and have to process a lot of bad news. Whether that's people getting bad diagnoses, deaths, family troubles. How do you respond to that bad news all the time? Empathy, sympathy, truth, prayer, silence, sometimes your own presence. And sometimes, anger. Not angry at the people, but angry because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Angry at the curse of sin that leads to pain and suffering and death. I remember when my little brother Jay called and told me that his eldest daughter, Isla, uh, was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. First emotion I remember feeling was anger. Not at God, honestly. Angry because that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we get to John 11, we're right at the end of Jesus' ministry. For three years at this point, Jesus has walked all over Israel, dealt with unbelief, dealt with sickness, dealt with poverty, dealt with pain, dealt with death. For three years, Jesus has dealt with religious leaders who are taking advantage of people, with spiritual enemies who are wreaking havoc on the population. At this point in our story, Jesus is walking around with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. You see him cursing fig trees. You see him again knocking over the tables of the money changers in the temple. Jesus has had enough. 
We are only weeks, if not days, probably, from when Jesus himself will go to the cross. I think at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's ready to go to the cross once and for all and defeat sin, Satan, and death. And it's this side of Jesus that we see here that leads us to the third way. I think John sharpens our picture of who Jesus is. (sighs) Providential, he's personal. Number three, he's emotional. He's emotional. Now I know, I know, I know. Our culture, this is a negative connotation. They're so emotional, I know that. But I think scripture draws this out in Jesus so that we can see his humanity. He understands humanity and he meets us in our weakness. They say uh, when a director wants a character in a movie to be disliked by an audience, they'll tell the actor to play that character with, with as little emotion as possible. Be emotionless. Is that how you see Jesus? Emotionless? Disconnected? Is the Jesus that you see unconcerned with the problems and the difficulties of your life? Friend, that's a distortion. The Jesus of the Bible we read about in Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, the author tells us. In this moment, we get to see a side of Jesus that often gets distorted, an emotional Jesus. Well, our story's almost over, but there's still a dead man to raise. Verses 38 to 44, the last part of our story, Jesus demonstrates his glory by raising the dead. Jesus demonstrates his glory by raising the dead. Now, at this point in our story, the pace gets pretty intense. In fact, it's almost like all these emotions of Jesus are translating into action. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, uh, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you, would, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus, still set on making sure that God gets the glory for this, takes everybody's attention where it needs to be. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many preachers have stated that if Jesus didn't specify Lazarus come out, every grave on the planet would have given up its dead. This leads us to the fourth way our image of Jesus gets sharpened in this text. He is powerful. He is powerful. There's no limit to his strength. Now, if you're reading through this gospel for the first time, what does it do to you to see Jesus raising somebody from the dead? 
Imagine you were at a, at a weight room, a gym, and um, see a big muscled up guy, bar on the ground, 500 pounds loaded up. He leans right over, deadlifts that thing, drops it. Now, if you saw across the gym, a 45-pound bar over there, no weights on it, would you have any doubt that that guy who just pulled 500 pounds could go over there and pull 45? No, you wouldn't. That's exactly what Jesus does for us here. He doesn't just show us that he has power over the dead. He shows us there's no limit to what he can do. If Jesus can raise somebody from the dead, what can't he do? There's no limit to his strength. Is that how you see him? Is the Jesus that you see powerful or is he weak? I was listening to an audio book last week. Um, this American soldier, he's a Korean War veteran, telling these awesome stories about serving over there. And um, he, of course, talks about some of the people he served alongside of. And one guy in particular that he mentions uh, was a guy whose nickname in the Korean War, American soldier, his nickname was Self-Propelled. Have you ever heard a cooler nickname for a soldier than that? It must have been pretty legit for people to actually use the full nickname. Um, Self-propelled, that's not quick to say. Uh, in the book, he'll be telling stories. He'll say like, you know, Jimmy was over there and Ryan was over here and self-propelled, grab the gun. This is what this guy was known as. I don't need anybody's help, self-propelled. Guys in the room, are you going through life self-propelled because your Jesus is too weak to help? I'll just do it myself. Moms here, are you overwhelmed in your day-to-day -day life and you're not asking for help because your Jesus is too weak to help you? College students, did you take a weak Jesus onto your campus who can't really help too much with the kind of stuff we deal with on campus? High school athlete, you leave a weak Jesus on the sideline while you go out and play with the big boys? If you're here today or watching, you're battling a disease that's not looking good, do you find yourself terrified of this disease because you have a weak Jesus who can't heal you or who can't guide you to the life to come? New believer, maybe you got saved recently. You're encountering for the first time some of the difficulties of your life as a person of faith. Is your Jesus too weak to help you? It's an awesome nickname for a soldier. Really bad strategy for life with Jesus. Is your Jesus powerful or is he weak? A weak Jesus is a distortion. 
He's powerful. There's no limit to his strength. Well, as we come to the end of our story in John 11, how do you see Jesus? How do you see him? So often, people reject Jesus, not because they see him for who he is, they reject him because they see a distortion. This is who Jesus really is. He's providential. He controls circumstances for his glory and our eternal good. He is personal. He draws us from general belief to personal trust. He's emotional. He understands our humanity and meets us in our weakness. And he is powerful. He shows us there's no limit to his strength. Now, as John 11 ends, it ends with two stories. And it's the same two stories that always get told about Jesus. In verse 45, the text says that many people believed. And then in verses 46 to the end of the chapter, it says that many others conspired with the Pharisees to kill Jesus. Those are the two stories that get told about Jesus. If you're an unbeliever in this room today, you face that choice before you. Do I see him for who he really is and believe? Or do I live with a distortion and reject him? If you're a believer in this room, you've got a similar choice to make. Do I believe in the Jesus for who he really is? Or do I keep following a distortion that I have created? This Easter... I pray you see Jesus for who he really is. He's providential. He's personal. He's emotional. And he is powerful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how Jesus has revealed himself to us in Scripture. Forgive us, Lord, when we live with a distortion of who he is. We see even in this story a man died. But you were doing something in his life to bring glory and wonder and majesty to your name. May we think about our own lives that way as we go through difficulty, as we encounter doubts, that we remember you're providential, you're personal, you're emotional, and you're powerful. God, help us in our weakness. We need you to see you the way we should. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.